0: We made it through 49 chapters of Genesis, and I think we should be able to get through the 50th chapter this morning, but we've come a long way, and the title for today's message in Genesis chapter 50 is God will surely visit you. God will surely visit you. We'll take a look at that word visit later and more what it means, but as we're closing out Genesis this morning, I thought it'd be good to recap Genesis. We recapped a little bit last week about the people, and today I think we're going to recap a little bit about God. This series is Genesis, God, and man, right? We don't want to forget that this whole book, really 66 books, written by 40 authors over a few millennia on several continents, it's truly all about God. It tells us who God really is. This isn't just a collection of historical stories about the people. It's about God and his relationship with the people. And we can certainly identify with the people, but in that we're to see how God loves them and really loves us just as much. And with that, that this book and 66 books, the collection we know is the Bible is really about God. It tells us who God really is. We've come up as mankind with a lot of different ideas about who God is. And they're all wrong, except for what's revealed here in the scripture. And speaking of all wrong, everything in the world that is called truth is not truth. What the real truth is, is what's revealed in scripture. Because the Bible gives us insight into reality itself. We knew about the world being round, about the water cycle about all these physical things. It tells us how creation happened. Sorry, guys, it wasn't the Big Bang. But also it tells us what's behind the veil, what the meaning of life is. And I believe that is love, because God is love. And not love the way the world defines it, for the world defines love as all sorts of things these days. But the Bible says it's something different, that God is love. But it tells us what's going on in the spiritual realm. Even scientists now feel like We perhaps live in what they call a hologram. And we won't get into that. But as I see in the scripture, I go, they're probably not far off the way reality works and the way it's before God in heaven. But the Bible tells us more importantly, what we need to know now to live here and forever. And that we will live forever one way or the other. But that what really will happen after we die? That's the big question. That's what every religion and even... Some things that won't call religion, try and figure out. Oh, well, there's no meaning to life, just live now, YOLO, and that's it, and you die. Well, how do you know? I'll tell you all I know. Because the Bible tells us. And it tells us the truth of why we die even in the first place. Because of sin. It tells us what sin is, why it is sin, and where it began if we remember all the way back 50 chapters ago, or 48 chapters ago, it began in the garden. And truthfully, it began probably before that. It depends on how you view uh, what transpired in heaven and Satan and the angels falling. And in some sense, sin began in heaven. And I don't know how heaven and reality interact. Was it the same moment? I can't pretend to understand those things, but I don't need to understand them. I don't understand them one way. One day, the Bible says, when I reach the other side. But what it does is it shows us that God is deeply interested. He's deeply interested, involved, and in love with mankind, that's men and women, as a whole, and each one of us individually. That he's not just a distant God who cares generally about the people, like the CDC, which I'm thankful we have, They care generally about the population. But when they say, oh, well, 10 people died and that's an acceptable number to God, 10 people going to hell is not an acceptable number. He leaves the 99 to get the one and he desires that no man or woman or child would perish. And a lot of people stumble at that. Well, if there is a loving God, why does it happen? Well, let's go back and look in Genesis. Let's go back to the beginning. He tells us right away, as soon as you open the first couple pages of the book, where it began, who it began, and what God is doing about it. He doesn't want you to wait three chapters in, season four, episode nine, to find out why everything is wrong. He tells us right away what's gone wrong and what he's doing about it. And with that, it shows that even from before the beginning, That he had a plan to save us from that sin. That when God set out to create the world, he knew what would happen. He knows the end from the beginning. He knew, if I do this, they're going to end up doing that. And if they end up doing that, I'm going to save them. And people might misconstrue that too. Well, if God knew it was going to happen, why do it in the first place? That's a philosophical argument for another time. But sincerely, just because he knows it will happen doesn't mean he desires it happen if you're a parent and you know your children sometimes you know what they're going to do even if you don't desire that they do it but you still want to give them that opportunity but it also shows us that he wanted to be with us he wanted and wants continually to be with us the whole way through even when we turned our back on him so we'll see in a minute god even paid attention to the people who were totally ignoring him And wasn't that you or I before we came to faith? And man, when someone else comes to faith, can we please not judge them that they don't have everything perfect already? They just got saved. Where were you and I the day we got saved? Where were you and I six months, a year, after we came to the Lord? Where are you and I now? Where should we be now? Let's not judge each other in that sense. Yes, we need to inspect fruit and look for righteousness, but let's not condemn each other when God himself doesn't condemn us we condemn ourselves. And with that, the Bible tells us what true love is. The world wants to know what love is. The world thinks it knows what love is and keeps expanding the definition of love. And it keeps getting his heart broken and the world keeps falling apart. But first John four, seven through 11 written 2000 years ago says beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. This love is agape love. It's perfect love. It's not Eros. I looked up uh, this verse on Google, and the first answer I get is Eros, the God of love. I'm like, no, Google. That's not the chief love. It's not erotic love. It's self-sacrificing love. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. If you're truly loving, you're going to be like God to others. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, said John. John knew about loving the Lord. Amen. We as Christians don't have a leg to stand on on our own. The only reason why we're Christians is because God loved us. If he didn't reveal himself, we never would have found him. If he didn't pursue us, we never would have turned. But we still have that choice to turn to him. Because I know God pursues everybody. And it's your choice or not to choose him or not. He won't make you. But just because you haven't chosen God doesn't mean that God hasn't chosen you. Chosen you. I need to choose English lessons again, perhaps. But this is Genesis. It's God and man and God's love for man, despite what man does. See, in Jacob's life, he said, my days were long and evil. I didn't live up to my forefathers, but what does God call himself? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And God desiring and doing to create this reality and ultimately humankind inside it. That's where Genesis starts. That he made us intimately, unlike the other creatures and created things in the universe. He took dirt, he molded it, and he breathed into it. He didn't speak and say, oh, let man appear over there. He got down and dirty and breathed into us. He didn't do that for the pigs. He didn't do that for the apes. He didn't do that for the stars. He did that for us. And that what he made was ultimately beautiful and good. He made a creation This universe exists and the earth exists within it and the sun and the stars and everything works together that the earth might work. And on that earth, he made a garden, a perfect place for us to live on a perfect planet and the perfect place in the solar system and the perfect place in the universe for us to enjoy and to live in. And he visited us intimately daily. We weren't just pets to him. We weren't a science experiment for him and the Holy Spirit and the Jesus but he came down, he walked in the cool of the day in the garden with us, to spend time with us. Adam, Eve, where are you? Here we are, Lord. And he made them and us, just as he rules over all spiritual and physical from heaven, that we are to rule over all the earth, all the beasts of the earth, and all the earth, and subdue it. And we have. We've covered the whole earth. We don't always do the best job of taking care of it, but we've we got everything under control. Dolphins aren't taking over. We're not in a war with the apes. As much as that movie tell us. But we're made in his image. As he is special and above all creation, so are we. He's not an angel who ascended like Satan wants to be. He thinks, oh, well, I can ascend up to God's position. God must have done that. I can do that. Isn't not us. We think that we're just some ape that ascended. That's not the case. Don't descend and, and act like an ape. But he gave us his word, and he told us what would happen if we chose to disobey it. He said flat out, "In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You're going to die, guys. Don't eat this tree. It's here because it has to be, but don't eat it. Don't eat it. It wasn't a death threat, well, if you disobey me, I'm going to kill you, it's just a natural consequence. If you unplug the TV, it goes off. If you run out of gas? The car stops driving the same way. If you turn from God, there's no, there's no life apart from God. There's no love apart from God. There's only death. If you choose to not use the light, you're only going to have darkness. It's not a threat. It's not a judgment. It's just the facts. It's reality. If God is love, if God is true and God is life eternal, well, if you choose anything but that, what's the, what's left to be chosen? Well, there's a lot of choices, but they all end up in one place, and that's death. And that's what Satan did. Satan twisted it and said, Oh, you're not sure they're going to die. He twisted it. He said, Well, yeah, they didn't die physically that day, but they would later on. Their bodies would now decay. Light Their bodies would now not be regenerated. And ultimately, they were separated from God, kicked out of the garden, and... Unable to enter an eternal life without a Savior. And God let us choose that because it's not forced love. We're not robots. We're we're designed to love God, but we don't have to. We're not programmed. We're not forced to. We're not His slaves. We get to be His servants out of love. And servant has a bad connotation in our society, and I get that. But it's not meant to be a bad thing. Because he calls us more than servants. He calls us his children. He calls us his friends. And he says he's a lover of our soul. That's not a servant. It's just naturally our position. We're not God, so everything we do is going to be in service to the greater. But that even when we chose to sin and couldn't cover ourselves and we hid from him, not him from us, because that's what sin is, that we hid from God. God did it put the veil up? We did when we ate in the Garden of uh, Eden and it covered our eyes from the spiritual things. We purposely said, no, we don't want to see things the way you do, God. We want to see them the way we do. And God didn't call them naked, but when they chose to not look at themselves the way God looked at them, they what? They realized they were naked. And God says, who told you you were naked? I made you this way. This is the way you're supposed to be. But because of sin has perverted your vision, has perverted your mind, You now see it as something shameful. And the world tries to reverse this shame all sorts of ways, but you can't now. It's done. It's over with. I'm not saying that we don't need clothes. We need clothes. We need covering because we're under sin. But even when we hid from him, he found us. He came after us. He called out to us. And then he made a sacrifice and he covered us. He protected us from being stuck in that sin forever, wearing something that wasn't sufficient to cover us in the wild. And he promised that he'd be with us. And that more than that, just walking with us, he would actually be born into the human race. That Eve's descendants and Adam's descendants would one day bear the Messiah. And that Messiah would destroy sin, destroy death, and destroy the evil one who led us into it forever. But with that, he continues to be involved with us personally. He was with Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, and Seth. And we know what Cain did. He was with Enoch, Methuselah, the man who lived longest. Enoch was taken to heaven. He was with Noah and his family, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Even he speaks of Nimrod in the Bible, the first world ruler. and the offshoot of Cain and Babel, he talks about these people, that he was watching them and paying attention to them, even when they went the wrong way. And in his grace and mercy, he confused Babel and said, I can't let them go down this path anymore. It's like they're trying to break back into the garden and get that tree of uh, everlasting life, but they're in sin. He was with Abram, Sarai. Didn't even know him at the time. He introduced himself to them as they were looking for God. Lot, Hagar, Ishmael, Isaac, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, Esau, Laban, Leah, Rachel, Bilhah, Zippah, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Dinah, Joseph and Benjamin. All these people, intimately involved with it. Everybody else, I'm sure, too. But these are the people through whom the story of the Messiah is told. And we even get a glimpse that he's with other people. If you remember Melchizedek along the way, well, where did this priest come from? He wasn't from Abraham's tribe, and yet he worshipped God, and Abraham paid him tithes. So God was working among other people. He wanted to reach the Pharaohs. He brought the Israelites into Egypt to be a witness to them and to protect and save the Egyptians too in all the world. He even gave good old Sodom and Gomorrah the wicked city the benefit of the doubt before judging them. He came down and said, I have to see for myself before I destroy these people from off the earth. And is that not what Jesus did for us and will do for us? He hasn't judged the world yet, but one day it's going to happen. And I'm sure he's given us way more time than we deserve. We look closely at Noah's life in Genesis, Abraham's, Isaac, Jacob's. And now at the end of Genesis, we spend a decent portion looking at Joseph's. That this man who is a picture of the Messiah to come, who in a sense is like a, 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 a type of Messiah. He's not the Messiah, but God uses him to save his people. He spends the the big portion of the end of the book talking about the Savior. That in all this story, although it is a, a hard story and a lot of hard things happen in Genesis, and it's not the happiest of tales, because how could it be happy outside the garden? God wants to remind us before the book is over that he's already working on the Messiah. He's already sending people out to save his people and that he'll be coming again one day. But we saw in Joseph's life that he was betrayed. He was sold into slavery. There was the famine and the feast, seven years of both, and Pharaoh. He was put in charge. He tested his brothers, remember, with the sacks and the gold and keeping one behind. He was reunited with his family. They all came uh, near to him and were forgiven by him and, and drawn near in Goshen. That Jacob blessed Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, the two that were born in Egypt, and they were treated as his own over his real firstborn reuben and we saw at the end of the last chapter that jacob died that after his long life and everything that happened that god let him see the savior so to speak he let him see his son again that his son was alive and more than that he got to spend i believe it was 17 more years with his family reunited at the end of jacob's life was in a good land, in a good place, with a family that was reunited. That despite all the hardships that came before, God let Jacob's retirement, so to speak, be pretty comfy. And with that, as we get started here, this 19-minute introduction into the short chapters, I think it was necessary. We needed to close it out. But are you sure about anything in life? And can we even be? And what's truly our guarantee of anything in life? You know, are you sure of the stock market? Well, your money says you're pretty sure. Maybe it's a gamble. People used to say, my word is my bond, and it used to mean something. But unfortunately, and fortunately in some sense, there's a reason we have contracts. Handshakes and verbal contracts are good, but most people don't keep them these days. That even with an actual contract, people try and find ways out of it. And having something written down, this verbal agreement, a verbal promise, now in paper form, is an excellent legal proof. You go, Judge, here's what we said, and there's their signature. It's a guarantee of what was agreed upon. And this morning, Lord, we ask that you would just open the Scriptures to us as we finish out Genesis together here, Lord, that you would speak to us and uh, strengthen us and guide us and help us trust you, God, uh, for everything. Bless all those who listen and and look in your Word, and bless all of your people today. May many come to you, in Jesus, name. Amen. So let's read uh, the first fourteen verses here together, and we're just going to take this chapter in the three chunks that are outlined here, probably in your Bible. <clears throat> And it says, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Remember, he had blessed his sons and spoke to them, and he passed, uh, he passed away in his bed. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now therefore please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers and his father's house, only their little ones, their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the thresh, uh, threshing floor of Etad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, "This is a deep mourning for the Egyptians." Therefore, its name is called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons had carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which is which Abraham bought. Excuse me, I'm having trouble reading today which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. So we see that Jacob dies at the very end of chapter 49. And really the chapter kind of turns into 50. They put this chapter break here right in the middle. But Joseph was clearly broken over his dad's death. We don't necessarily see him weeping in prison. We saw him weeping over his brothers being reunited with them. We see him weeping here when his dad dies. He loved his dad. He had that close relationship with his dad. And I'm sure he's thankful to have his dad back for a few decades, but losing your parents is supposed to be hard. If you remember all the way back in Genesis, we're not meant to experience death. We're not meant to go through it. We're not designed and capable Of handling it on our own. We're never meant to experience it. That was the whole point. With our fathers and with our mothers, or whoever we were raised by, no matter who they are, how they treated us, they're still our parents. Even if you don't know your parents, and you're adopted. there is a natural affection there that should not be broken or discounted. We may or may not be able to safely have a relationship with them. You know, perhaps they're abusive. Perhaps they're not around anymore. We don't know even where they are. And maybe we just can't have that relationship. It's just not going to work. But even when they die, we should still weep and mourn over it, not to bury it, because we're naturally tied to them. And as believers, if our parents don't know the Lord or perhaps are in trouble, we need to weep and mourn and pray for them now before the Lord, before it's too late. That they might be saved and restored, like we saw Joseph and his family back together. I'm sure he prayed for that all the time. But how long did it take? And to have a chance that, that relationship that we could have that relationship with them, Because we rightfully desire it. We're rightfully created to have that that relationship with our parents. It's the way it works. So don't give up on your family. Why? Because God has never given up or will give up on you. And he certainly hasn't on them either. No matter what they treat you like. I'm not saying it's easy. And again, I'm not saying you need to have a relationship with them. if They're abusive. But until death, there's always time. The problem is we don't know how much time there is till death. So let that death not hang over you as guilt, but let it be a catalyst to love them and pray for them and share the gospel and be a good kid to them and care for them like Joseph did. Let us seek restoration with them, right? And may that bond never be broken, right? My little Timmy's looking at me now. I never want that bond to be broken. I always want to be someone that he can look at and smile and and love no matter what he's doing and know that his dad loves him. But we see here that uh, Jacob was embalmed and we know if you know anything from high school history class or going to the museum, perhaps that the Egyptians embalmed people. It was this lengthy involved and highly skilled practice where they would basically operate on the person, take out their organs, even take out their brain through their nose and other things that are pretty gross, but amazing, especially given their day and age. And they would put them in these special pots that would dry out the organs, prevent rot, and let them last. But this practice was also deeply entrenched in their religion. They were seeking to have a body that could live on in the afterlife. And that's why only rich people had it. Only rich people could afford to do it. Only pharaohs had, uh, and important people had um, pyramids built for them. That was meant to be their home for the afterlife. They had food and provisions in there. If it was today, they probably would have put a TV in there too, so if I would have something to watch. But it's everything they needed for the afterlife. And it's interesting that even in this pagan culture, they had eternity in their hearts. And Ecclesiastes 3.1 says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work of God that God does from the beginning to the end. That even in this, they knew that eternity was real. And they were trying to prepare for it. We see people now trying to prepare for eternity, trying to have immortal bodies and put their brains in a computer and live forever that way. I don't want to live forever in a computer. I don't want to live forever in heaven. And I've read about missionaries who have done well when they've discovered how the people they seek to minister to see life, see the afterlife, see God, and they use those touch points to then... Connect the dots for them to the true God and his son who died for them. If we remember back a few chapters, Joseph's divination cup. Again, not that he naturally practiced actually practice magic, but we see that the people were all into trying to figure out spiritual things. And they thought that Joseph had this spiritual insight, which he did, but he didn't have it because of this cup. He had it because of which the cup that God gave him. And it seems by what he's saying here, because apparently... Physicians were one thing and embalmers were another, two separate uh, professions, so to speak, in Egypt. But it seems that Joseph perhaps had his physicians, the doctors, embalm his dad perhaps to avoid all the magic and false religious practices that his dad could be preserved in an honorable way in their society but not have all that false things, not not be embalmed in, in the false religion, so to speak. You talk about being wise as a serpent, as gentle as a dove, and being in the world and not of it, that Joseph used his place and power in Egypt to provide for his family and honor his dad, but he wasn't corrupted by it. He wasn't changed by it or molded by it. He was still Joseph, the one who loved the true God. And it's interesting that we see that normally those involved were not the ordinary citizen. Again, obviously expensive process, right? And even then, a, a celebrity in Egypt, perhaps, would get 40 days of mourning. And, oh, this important person died. We, we, see, we read news all the time of celebrities who die and famous people who die. Uh, you know, we mourn maybe a day on social media. and <laughs> it's forgotten about. It. But they would mourn for 40 days publicly for important people. But for Jacob, Joseph's dad, they got 70 days. It's almost double. And even then, Pharaoh apparently only got 72 days. So this is two steps down. you got Pharaoh 72, maybe Joseph would get 71, and Jacob got 70. That shows that Joseph had amazing clout and importance to the people, that his dad, this sheep herder from the wilderness, who only showed up a decade and a half earlier, is now getting 70 days of national mourning. And I find it interesting that in this Egyptian history, that this Jewish man was so important to them as well. That he was someone from the outside, he was brought in and saves them and their society. That Joseph here, again, is another picture of Jesus. But Joseph doesn't go directly to Pharaoh and sends a message to him about his dad's death and what his dad had him swear to do. So obviously he's still Pharaoh's servant, he doesn't just walk in and say, Hey, Pharaoh, what's going on? I need to go bring my dad. That somehow he's still his servant and he has to ask for this time off from Pharaoh. And he explains what he's going to do and that he will come back. You know, that Joseph's not going to leave Egypt now. His dad's gone. He's not turning his back on Pharaoh. He's not going to stop serving Pharaoh. This is where he lives. This is where his family is. This is where God wants them to be. He just needs to go bury his dad where his dad wants to be buried. And then he's going to come back. He's not going to quit his job. He's not going to stop being there to advise Pharaoh and look over the land. Um, And imagine, I, I think, if he didn't say this, maybe it would cause some turmoil in the land. Maybe there would be some division in the land. And Joseph's honoring uh, his earthly king. Joseph knew that this wasn't his kingdom. He didn't need to fight for it. He knew this is, this is, this is it. This is where we're at. And I just read uh, last night, Ephesians 6, 5-9 says, Bondservants, servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. You know, it goes on. you know not with eye service. That Joseph, even in this top echelon of Egypt still obeyed pharaoh still served pharaoh still was a good servant even though he's in this great place of power don't let power corrupt you don't let it change your behavior uh, when you're promoted still serve we see that joseph takes his dad to bury him and all the servants of pharaoh go with him pharaoh's probably left home alone like i don't know how to use a microwave because all the servants have gone out to help and give honor to joseph's father what a thing What a thing God has done that Pharaoh now sees Joseph's family as something to be honored. That's a big deal to receive all that. That even the the elders of Pharaoh's house go as well. Maybe Pharaoh's kids, maybe his top advisors go too. You see all Joseph's house goes, his brothers, and all the people of his dad's house. This is a big procession, a big funeral procession. Remember, you know, like Princess Diana died and huge parades. JFK died huge, you know, parades and memorials for these things. Jacob wasn't anything in Egypt. He was just the dad of Joseph. And look at all the honor he received. But they left behind their animals and they left behind their kids. And I think partly to show that it was obvious that they weren't leaving, that they would be coming back. But also taking kids on that long journey can be a little tough. But they're coming back because the most important things stayed behind. I think that was honorable of Joseph too. You know, I think Pharaoh in 400 years in the future... I don't know. It's interesting. But they go beyond the Jordan. They go to the threshing floor, and they go back to the promised land. That they were looking not to be buried in Egypt, but be buried where God would have them. that although God was providing physically for them in Egypt, they knew spiritually their destination and their provision was not Egypt. And this is not to be us that we know that God provides for us in the world. He causes the rain to fall, and we have jobs, and we have food, we have family. We can settle down and buy a house and have a life. But this is not spiritually our home. We're just sojourners here. We're here temporarily. And one day God will bring us out of Egypt and into the promised land. But as the locals looked on uh, outside of Egypt, they saw it as a deep mourning for the Egyptians. Uh, And literally this name that they give it is the mourning of of Egypt. That when they see this place, they remember that Egypt, all of Egypt mourned for this place. And it's interesting that Jacob and the fledging Israelites were a big deal for the Egyptians, but the people in the Promised Land still didn't even know about the promise and the people of it. But that Egypt, this major nation, was the first one to get a hint of the promise. But we see that Jacob was buried like he asked, and he's with his family, and he's with his, uh, and he was honored. I think in some ways God really blessed him that although through his whole life he wasn't honored, he did dishonorable things, but in the end, God honored him. You know why? Because Jacob honored God in his life. At the end of his life, he was still with God. And God honors that. It's not how you start a race. It's how you finish it, right? Let's go on. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of your servants of the God of your father. You know, they're admitting, we serve God now. We've repented. we come back to God. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I'll provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. We see that when Jacob died, The fear came back into Joseph's brothers. I think part of them obviously felt that their dad was their their covering, their buffer between Joseph and them. That their earthly dad was the one who was protecting them from Joseph. Because perhaps Joseph loved his dad so much, he wanted to have a a reunion with them and be kind to his dad and not give his dad any problems. But as soon as that went away, that would be it. Perhaps they felt that the only reason that Joseph brought them back in the land and was kind to them is just so that he could see his dad just so that he could see Benjamin, that truthfully in the end that Joseph would show his true colors, that they would come out and it would show that he really didn't forgive them and he would repay them now this time. But that wasn't the case. Because Joseph's earthly dad wasn't the conduit between him and his brothers, wasn't the covering of his brothers, it was their heavenly father. That Joseph was good to his brothers because his heavenly father was good to him, not because his earthly father was. And they sent messengers to him. They were afraid to go to their brother now. These men are afraid. And sin will do that. Even after we're forgiven, sometimes we get afraid again. The enemy will come in and begin to attack us and try and make us afraid. But God's like, I've already forgiven you. And we see that Joseph wept over this. that It broke his heart to think that his brothers would think about all these things again. That his brothers would go back to this place that was forgiven and forgotten and in a foreign land as far as the east is from the west. And it broke his heart. He said, no, guys, no, no, no. You meant it for evil, true, right, I get that. But God meant it for good, and you're forgiven, and says that he spoke kindly to them. spoke kindly to them. As believers, we need to be this brokenhearted over our families like Joseph was, especially to those who have wronged us, or have gone astray. Why? That they might know that they can truly come to us And to the Lord. That we don't forgive them out of the goodness of our hearts, We're not kind to them in a surface way. We're kind and good to them because God is kind and good to us. And God would be the same to them, despite who they are and what they've become. And why? Like we see in Genesis, the whole reason of Genesis is that God's desire for them is life and not death. He spared them through the famine. He spared them through the flood. He allowed uh, all the children to be prospered and live and continue on. Because that's the message of not only Genesis, but the whole Bible. That God doesn't desire to judge us, but to save us. You know, Romans 2.4 says, do you, do you despise the riches of God's goodness, forbearance, and suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? That God is good to us, because He is good, and in that goodness, we might repent. Sometimes that goodness comes with the spanking, so to speak, spiritually, but it's still His goodness to, towards us. And so the brothers, although they were afraid to go directly before him, you know, I don't know if you've ever been afraid to send a text message when you should have sent an email. I mean, an email when you should have sent a text. text when you should have called and called when you should have gone there. They're afraid to, to deal with it. They don't even want to go in his house and maybe they'll get arrested. But Joseph calls for them. And they bow down to him. And those dreams keep coming true over and over. All these years later, why? Because Romans eleven twenty nine: the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That these things for him and his family is still true, even after his father's death. I love verse nineteen: it says, "Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God?" Because Joseph is not going to judge them. He knows that it's God's place to judge. God is on the throne. Joseph's got his own throne. But his throne is not a throne of judgment over his family. It's a throne meant to bless and provide for his family. That Joseph will only forgive them and will only bless them. And should that not be us too, as believers? Yes, there are two types of judgment, discernment and condemnation. We do need to discern right from wrong. We do need to be able to speak in someone's life that, hey, look, this is wrong in your life. The Bible says clearly this is wrong. But not to come with condemnation. This is wrong and you're going to hell for it but this is wrong and you could go to hell for this. That's not what God has for you. You can say the same thing and they may take it as judgment, but it's not. But we're not to judge them. We're going to always give them hope and reach out to them as God reaches out to them as well. He says, you meant evil, but God meant it for good. And again, even when bad things happen, awful things like we've talked about before, it's not God's fault. It's others' choices, not God's choice that we would say and it's our choice when we do it but God will always choose to use it for good in all of our lives if we will but let them, let them, you know, even in Acts we hear about uh, the disciples, uh, the apostles getting beaten in prison and they give an opportunity to be, get out of prison from an earthquake and they don't go that they might minister to the prison guard and what his family and himself get saved. Even that happens in modern times. I've heard of modern prisoners being beaten in communist countries or other oppressive regimes. In Nazi Germany, and being able to minister to those who say them Quarry ten Boom. And uh, one of the guards came up to her afterwards and she forgave him. Can you imagine? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But Joseph cares about them. He cares about their offspring and their future. But he cares about them and he cares for them. And he kind of shows it like, look, I'm going to take care of your kids too. Your kids are going to grow up and be blessed just like mine are. I'm not going to rule over this family and wipe you guys out and be the sole inheritance here. And a person once said to me, I know what people think of me by how they treat my kids. Isn't that not true that I know my friends and I know what they think of me by how they love my kids and play with my kids and ask about my kids. I have to wonder about the government and the government thinks they know better than parents and the way they treat our kids in public school and in life. And you have to go, This is how they treat our kids. What do they really think about us? That we're just their property, right? I hope not. And even if so, we know that we're God's children. But he speaks kindly to them and he comforts them. And is that not the heart of God towards us, even in conviction, that his words are kind, although cutting? And the purpose is to get us out of sin. And Joseph just wants his family to be blessed. And, And this isn't like the Lord. The Lord only has comforting. He sends the comforter to us. That the same person who's the comforter is the same one who convicts us, and that's the Holy Spirit. Let's go on and close out in these last few verses of the book of Genesis. In verse 22, it says, So Joseph dwelt in the land, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land, to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, that Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That Joseph lived out a full life here. That he's 110 years old when he passes away, and he gets to see his great-great-grandchildren that Manasseh to the third generation, right? You know, it's possible, even if you had kids at 30, grandkids at 50, great at 70, and great great at 90, you could totally do that. Uh, but it says they're of Ephraim, that Manasseh and his kids obviously get a later start, uh, each of them, so he only sees his great-grandchildren uh, from that side. But that's got to be a joy. You know, I, I see uh, my parents and Ashley's parents with our kids, their grandkids, and it's just a joy to see that, and I... Uh, you know, I, I have fond memories of my grandkid, grandparents from when I was a kid, but they all passed away when I was young. And so it's a real blessing to see them uh, with my children. I can't imagine them seeing my children's children or my children's, children's children and myself as well. Uh, you know, what a, what a joy to be a grandparent, I bet. They have such a great responsibility and role in their children's and grandchildren's life to bless them and lead them in the ways of the Lord and also kind of spoil them. In the ways that, you know, they give them the noisy toy and they get to go home and who gets sick with the noisy toy. Uh, but verse 24, Joseph says, I am dying and God will surely visit you. And there's the title of the message that God will surely visit you. That Joseph says, look, you know, I've been your provider and protector here in Egypt. And that even though I'm going, it wasn't really me that provided for you. It was God and God's going to keep being with you. God's not dying. It's just me that's dying. Um, you think about pastors or people in your life who pass away, who are important, and you looked up to, perhaps even parents, uh, that even though they may have gone away, that God is still with you. And he has them think back all the way to the promise of the Messiah, the promise of Noah, the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was going to be fulfilled through the great, great, great grandchildren and their children and their children and so on and so forth that God's promise to them would endure. That God's promise to them would wasn't bound by death, right? Just like God's promised us in Jesus. The disciples mourned because they forgot what? That in three days he would rise again. That death isn't the end of God's promise to us. In fact, it's really kind of the beginning. And he gives them a reminder of the promised land that guys, Egypt isn't it. Stay here until God takes you out. He's with you here. That this is his place for you. Don't leave it. Don't run away. But he reminds them, you don't need me. You need God. And isn't that our responsibility ultimately in life to point others to God, to be there for them, to provide for their needs, to cover them, to forgive them, to be a good brother, a good son, a good grandfather, a good employee. But the end of it, our whole purpose in life is to show others how good God is and how much they need Him. And it's hard leaving those you love. When we left New York, it was hard. It's still hard. You know, it's still good quote-unquote, homesick. I don't feel home in New York, but I miss the people of home, so to speak. But you know what? It's a lot easier knowing that God is calling and that God is with me here, but also that God is with them there. If I didn't feel like God was with them back in New York, and I, I might feel like I have to be back there. But I know God is with them. They don't need me to take care of them. God is with them. And Why would you want me over God back there anyway? I'm sorry, why would you want God... Or, Me over God here anyway, so trust the Lord. But Psalm 17.15 says, As for me, David says, I will see your face, God, in righteousness. I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. David said, everyone else gets satisfied by the things of the earth. But I'm satisfied when I die and I close my eyes and I finally die and I open them and I'm in your presence. I'm made like you. Now Joseph, I believe, is satisfied in death. He knew where he was truly going. He knew that one day God would bring the people out, that he said, hey, even prepare my body. His will was that his body would be prepared, that they bring his body to the promised land. He knew he had a true afterlife, unlike this false resurrection of his adopted society, that Joseph hasn't vowed to bring his bones, that even though he's in Egypt, it's not his eternal home. He doesn't want a pyramid, a mountain made by man. He wants the mountain of God in the promised land. He wants Calvary. But he's abombed and preserved, and I think wouldn't it be interesting for an archaeological dig to dig it up and they find this guy named Joseph in the Egyptian sarcophagus, all unbound like in a like a mummy, right? But really, guys, this is it. This is this is the end of this is the end. You read verse twenty six and go, Is shouldn't there be some sort of outro to to Genesis? Isn't there some segue here and it just says that he was put in a coffin? In Egypt and I think it's great that that's sort of the last statement of Genesis because it kind of says this isn't the end of God's story that this is just the end of a chapter so to speak in history of God's plan and in that it kind of highlights the promise of the future that God will be with them that God is going to take them out of Egypt one day as we see Exodus starts out with the genealogy and it picks up about 400 years later with a large group of Israelites in Egypt. And we have a megalomaniac pharaoh who has forgotten all about Joseph and wants all the firstborn killed. But let's not worry about him right now. Let's just remember the promise that God will surely visit you. And that word visit means to attend to, to number, to reckon, to appoint, to look after, to care for, to pay attention to, to observe, to look out for, to watch over be an overseer to be entrusted with that joseph passes the torch so to speak to god and it was always god's torch to begin with and he reminds him that joseph was only he himself was only a part of god's provision for them that god was really the one watching over them despite joseph being the one who physically gave them bread god's the one who put joseph in that place and it sounds a lot like jesus when he ascended that he would send the comforter one day right to bring us into the Promised Land. And we couldn't follow him just then when he ascended, right? And Psalm 138.2 says, I will worship towards your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. That as good as God's name is, it's the holiest of holy names. It's a perfect name. It's the name of God. It means salvation. That God is salvation. But with that, he puts his word Above it, And what's his word? The Bible. He says, the word proves who I am. And that God had promised to save all of us in the very beginning of his word. At the very beginning of time, he made a promise for all time, for the end of time and for eternity. And beyond that, he had it written down as a guarantee. And anytime we want to know what God's word is, all we have to do is simply open it and read it and believe it. And we can believe it because God proved it by staying with us, by making himself known to all the individuals, to all the nations, and really to the entire world. That every generation has had an opportunity to come to God, has, an op- has had an opportunity. Even those people in remote places, I guarantee God has revealed himself to them. There's stories of people in closed-off countries and regions where, the, where Islam prevents them from even getting a Bible. And Jesus shows up to them in the room and says, I'm the one you're looking for. Because God can't be stopped. And ultimately, God proves it to us by not only promising it would happen, showing why it would happen, and despite our sin, and in fact, because of our sin, He comes and dies on a cross for us. That that's God's promise, ultimately fulfilled, ultimately X marks the spot, and there is the cross. And do you have the assurance that the cross brings do you trust the guarantee of God's word and of, of the Bible and of Jesus on dying on the cross? Because 2 Corinthians 1 20 through 22 says, For all the promises of God in him are maybe. No, they're yes. And in Jesus, amen. So the glory of God through us. The glory of God showed big time through Joseph. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit and in our hearts as a guarantee. As a believer, we have the Holy Spirit as our guarantee that we're saved. Sometimes you want to doubt and wonder, but you go, no, the Holy Spirit is working in my life. The Holy Spirit's ministered to me the truths of God. And as an unbeliever, if you don't know God this morning, know that His Word is a guarantee for you. That I say yes and amen. If you will just come to me, I will wash you white as snow. Come, let us reason together. Although your sins be as scarlet as though they stink and they smell and they've caused death, I will wash you white as snow. I'll take them as far as the east is from the west and give you a guarantee of a hope and a future and eternal life and not eternal death. And it's free. You don't have to do anything except pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I don't really know you yet, but I've come to know that Jesus loves me. I don't understand it. That's hard to grip with it, but I believe it. Deep down in my heart, I know it's true. And you die for me. God, forgive my sin. Make me new, wash me clean, and help me live for you. God, because you love me and die for me and help me get into the Word and get into church that I might continue with you and always have your Word as a guarantee. And God, fill me, Holy Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've prayed that prayer, know that you're guaranteed heaven that your inheritance cannot be taken away, cannot be taxed away, no one can steal it, that you have the assurance of God's promises, and every word in this Bible is for you. And God, thank you for that promise. Thank you for that assurance. Thank you that throughout the entire book of Genesis, I can't believe that, God, we got through it. God, because I'm so feeble, but you're so strong. And God, I pray that through all this word, we would never forget how good you are, how you've always been with us, how you've had a plan, and nothing that ever happens, that sin, done to us or by us or against us never throws you off course. That Through all of Genesis, God, you were never flustered. You were never, oh, what am I going to do? You were steady and strong and unchanging and got a rock to turn to, God. So in these last days God let us stand on you despite the waves and the wind of the world. We know that God we have an assurance in you like no other and may the world see that and want that and come into the fold and come into the ark of uh, the covenant with you, Jesus, by your blood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And may God bless you and keep you and His face shine upon you. Come soon, we pray, Lord Jesus. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind and door, we drink first light until